when Luke wrote this letter, he said, just I'm going right back to the beginning, he said to Theophilus, we don't really know who he is, an excellent Theophilus, some, some uh, important guy, he said, I'm writing this orderly account to you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke wants to um, give uh, Theophilus certainty about the things that he's learned about Jesus Christ. And as we go through Luke, this is something that we keep wanting to find and and look for certainty. And I think you'll find today uh, that, again, it's a profound text that brings us some profound certainty about God. What we're going to look at is three things. Firstly, a revelation. Secondly, a reality. Thirdly, a response. So a revelation. In the ancient world, as we saw when we went through Psalm 23, being a shepherd wasn't the job you dream of when you're a young boy or girl. It's not like you go to school and what do you want to be? I want to be an astronaut. Uh, I want to be an engineer. I want to be a shepherd. Uh, Shepherd is not what people wanted to be. Shepherd is what you became. It's what you ended up uh, being. Shepherd wasn't a great job. Uh, You lived outside with animals. Um, I know Josh might like that idea. Uh, Living outside with his chickens. Um, Their job kept them from religious ceremonies. So in some senses, they were ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go and practice the rituals because they had to stay with the animals and look after them. And some uh, commentators say that shepherds weren't allowed to give testimony in a court. Um, and they were, that's how low they were thought of, is that they, you couldn't trust the shepherd's testimony. And here we have a text again, like some of the others, where Luke inserts a revelation of Jesus and puts it in the hands of the most unlikely group of people, shepherds. An angel could come to kings, an angel could come to uh, people of importance, to judges, uh, to wealthy, prominent people. If you're going to make up a story, you're going to put... Uh, the angel's message into the hands of those who other people want to be like, because if that's the direction they're going, then others will follow. What you don't do is go put the testimony into the hands of those uh, that no one wants to be like, the, the lowly. So already there we have some credibility in the incredibility of shepherds' uh, revelation of Jesus. This is quite exciting. Um, so here's some shepherds that are keeping watch at night of the, uh, the, their sheep, And they're making sure that no robbers or predators are going to harm their their flock. And an angel of the Lord comes, and we don't know which angel it is. It's probably not the same angel that met Zechariah in uh, the the Holy of Holies. Uh, Remember that terrifying experience for Zechariah. Probably wasn't the one who went to Mary. It could be, we don't know, but it doesn't seem to be the angel of the Lord. It just seems to be an angel of the Lord comes. uh, But he comes with the presence of God. This angel comes, and there's a sense of God within the glory of God surrounds them. And the shepherds are terrified. As we've looked, at, looked back on in the past, it's, I can imagine, if, you know, don't know all the personalities of angels, but I can imagine if one was like some of you or, or me, that whenever you have a message that you can go deliver, it's an opportunity to just freak someone out. And once again, they come at night. I mean, maybe they could have come during the day. Maybe they could have come while they were walking along. But waited, this angel waited till nighttime. Uh, to bring their, deliver their message. Probably appropriate, because it's probably uh, when Jesus is born. Um, but what fun they have. And they come, and the glory of God, the presence of God surrounds them. And the shepherds are terrified. Understandably, they're fearful. But the angel tells them not to fear. And there's three simple reasons. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. I bring you good news. I've come with a message just for you personally. 
How often do you suppose that shepherds looking after their flock by night who were the lowly amongst the citizens would have someone of great importance come to them like a king's messenger or someone or someone from Rome and one of the emperors sends a message for the shepherds and someone of great importance with some sense of glory around them comes and says, I have a good message for you. Never in their lives. That's how often. They've never had that ever in their lives. They've never expected it. They've never even imagined it could happen. But here comes an angel of the Lord, the glory of the Lord surrounds him, and he says, don't be scared. I've got a good message for you. Secondly, he says, this is a message of great joy. It's going to bring you encouragement. And it's for all people. It's not just for you. This is a great message. It's going to go big and wide. So the obvious question that they may want to ask this angel is, okay, what's the good news? We're not used to good news. My, my, by accident, once the TV was on, not, that's not the accident, we watch TV regularly. The TV was on when the news came on. That was the accident. And my kids watched the news and were terrified. They didn't understand that this was what the world was like. Oh my goodness, there's so many bad things happening. The news is horrible. It's horrific. We don't hear good news as frequently as we uh, are exposed to bad news. Um, And so the shepherds could understandably be quite excited. Well, what is this good news? Can't wait to hear it. When someone comes in and shares, you you know how quickly your mind works? You know how your mind races ahead of like what someone can say? So if someone says to you, hey, Mark, I've got good news for you. You know how you can think of like a hundred different things they could say before they say the next word? This is one of those moments, you know, like their thoughts are going crazy. Their imaginations, what could, this, what could this good news be? What's the good news? The angel says, a baby has been born. Not just a baby has been born. A baby has been born to you. The, the birth of this baby has specific um, connection to you. There's a consequence of the birth of this baby for you. This baby has been born to you in the city of David, the king. This is prophecy. That's what was prophesied before. And then the angel uses three words which are not used anywhere else together. Three titles for Jesus. This baby is the Savior. This baby is the Christ. This baby is Lord. The Savior, Christ Jesus, the Lord, is born. Wow. Savior means that this baby has come to rescue you. You don't have to fully understand it yet, but there's something you need to be rescued of, and this baby is going to do it. This baby is going to rescue you. This baby is going to rescue you from your greatest enemies. Christ, this is the promised one. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. Lord, this baby is over all. This baby has lordship. This baby is sovereign. This baby isn't under Octavius. This baby may have been born in a region that Octavius is responsible for, but this baby is the Lord. This baby is born in a manger in this kind of smelly trough already over Octavius and over Julius Caesar and over everyone else. This baby is the Lord. Wow. So the next obvious question is, well, how can we know that God is with us? I mean, that's the only, if, if God has entered the world into human form, in the form of the baby, and he's come to rescue us, and this is what he's promised since the Old Testament, and he is the sovereign one who's going to reign over all, how can we know that? Because that just sounds too good to be true. And as we all know, if something sounds too good to be true, it's 
too good to be true. This sounds too good to be true, but so give us some sign. Well, how can we be sure? And the sign is the least expected sign you could imagine. Now, where do you suppose Christ, the Savior, the Lord of all, might be born? Just in, in a human thinking. In a palace. Thank you, Anna. It, it, let's just stay there and move on. This is the other end of expectation. Not only in some obscure city, not only in some obscure inn, but around the corner of the inn, in the place where they keep the animals, and not in some nice bed, where they've, but in the animal trough. Because Christ is going to come to the lowly. Christ is going to come to those who've got nothing to bring. Christ is going to come not for those who are, are looking uh, to, to, uh, for someone who's um, you know, wealthy, attractive, got everything going for them, and they, they're just going to come and charge over them and destroy all them. They're going to, Christ is going to come for those who are humble and those who are willing to, to lay themselves down and to be rescued by the cross, a form of shame. He's going to turn the world upside down. He, the, in, his, in His kingdom, the, the leaders are going to serve. The greatest are going to be small, and the small are going to be great. It's, um, we can't even conceive it. We can't even create it. We can't even imagine it. But Christ brings this kingdom in. And you can go find Him, the King of all, lying in an animal trough with some dried up cow spit. The last thing the shepherds could expect. So this is unlikely. Okay. We'll go look. The angel leaves. But before the angel leaves, sorry. Something, quite, something surprising happens. As the angel says this, <laughs> it says a multitude of angels come as well and start praising God. Picture this. Picture what's happening. These shepherds, these lowly people are looking after their sheep at night. An angel comes, the glory of the Lord surrounds them. They're fearful. It says, don't be scared. I've come to give you good news. A baby has been born for you in the city of David. as the promised king, the Messiah, the Lord of all. He's going to rescue you. How can we find him? You'll go find him over there and he's going to be lying in an animal trough. And in that moment, not all the angels, but some angels leave heaven and come and there's a multitude of them and together they sing this chorus and start praising God and the, and the shepherds are witness of this angelic chorus sung to, together to God. Why would they do that? They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. The angels didn't come down to praise anything about earth. The angels didn't come down to praise anything about the shepherds. The angels didn't come down to praise anything about Mary or the journey or even, even necessarily the scriptures being fulfilled. The angels came down because Christ had come down. The angels came down to be where Christ was, to praise God from where God had entered the world. The angels came down because God had come down to bring peace to man. It's an angelic way of participating in the redemptive story. We want to be where God is. We want to be alongside what God is doing. We want to see, we want to hear, we want to praise God wherever God's involved. And here come the angels. They could have just stayed in heaven praising God, but here they come to earth and they praise God. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth to those with whom He's pleased. They start announcing the gospel. 
So the question then is, as they hear this chorus, can you imagine? The question they, they might ask in their hearts is, well, who is God pleased with? If you turn to Luke 10, 21, I'm going to read it anyway, and it's going to be on the board, so you don't have to. It says this, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Who, who in this story, who are the people... Because when it talks about pleased, this is the other time where that word shows up. Who is God pleased to show His will to? Who is He pleased to bring revelation to in this text? The children. Who is He not pleased to show His will to? The wise and the understanding. In other words, who, is God ple- who, who are those whom God is pleased to move upon, to bring the gospel to? to there's, those, there's a humility you know, Jesus says, unless you have faith like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. There's a humility about a child to accept the lowly, the weak, the outcast, the downcast. There's a humility about them to see who God is, to see what Jesus has done with them. They understand their need better than many of us who lack need. When we lack need, we often lack the ability to see that we need Jesus. But those who know that they have needs, those who humbly live their lives, I need. The gospel's good news for them. God's pleased to reveal uh, this to them. This is so upside down. God is pleased to save the lowly, the weak, the needy, the humble, those who are in great need, those who have nothing to offer, people like the shepherds. So the angels leave, and now the shepherds have to decide what they're going to do. And we look at the reality. A revelation is not enough yet. They need to move on. So they go, they're going to go discover the reality of Jesus. And what we see, the shepherds decide to, uh, together to go straight away to Bethlehem to see this baby. And it says that they found him just as the angel has said. They fi- find him lying in a manger there. Um, And they immediately begin to share the news about what had been shared with them. They begin to broadcast that to others. And it seems like it's not just Mary and Joseph in the room anymore. Either the shepherds have left the room or others have joined the room. But but all who hear this news uh, are in wonder and awe. It doesn't mean that they've had revelation. It means that they... They've, they've, um, they've, they've, their ears have been tickled. There's something about this. They're going, to, they're going to kind of watch and see. But for Mary, it says that she treasured these things in her heart. There was a deeper uh, joy when she hear, heard this news. She treasured them in her heart and meditated on them, reflected on them, couldn't stop thinking about them. Mary's whole life starts to be tra- changed and transformed by what she's heard about Jesus and what's going on in her life. The reality of Jesus is shaping Mary's life now, her thoughts, her affections. And the shepherds returned to their flocks, changed people. It says that they returned glorifying God and praising God. They joined the angels because Jesus had come into their lives. These shepherds, who moments ago, hours ago, days ago, were just looking after their sheep, are now broadcasting the greatest news the world has ever heard 
and joining in the greatest song that's ever been sung. Joining with the angels to praise our God. Their lives have been changed. The baby hasn't even done anything. Well, he probably has. And to be completely crass, he's probably pooped his pants. Probably burped on Mary's shoulder. And he's already changing lives. The reality of Christ in the world is turning lives upside down. I want to ask you something, and we're going to get a bit philosophical here, but, but it's going to be, I think it's going to be helpful. What's your greatest fear and why? I'm not going to ask you to answer that question. I'm not going to answer you, ask you to tell the person next to you. So you're welcome to go as deep as you want to go because you don't have to fear that it's going to be exposed. What's your greatest fear and, and why? I'm not talking about um, phobia, like arachnophobia or something like that. I'm scared of spiders or snakes. Or, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, deep fear, deep kind of... You fear in your humanness, in your soul. And why? Just think about the answer for 30 seconds. Okay, hopefully you've got something. The angel told the shepherds not to fear because of the good news that brings joy to all people, right? And Jesus, the rescuer, this promised one, uh, the, the, uh, since, since time began, the promised one, he's here and he has authority over all of earth and he's going he's, he's to rescue them and they're going to know uh, God through him. Um, I want to think about two things and how, this, how the gospel uh, applies to our lives or how it gets to work in our lives. The two things I want to talk about is existentialism and worldview. Yeah. We hear about existentialism a whole bunch. Uh, we hear about people having existential crises the whole time. Uh, and most of the time, if you're like me, you don't understand what it means. But it's actually quite helpful to understand what it means. Existentialism is, is talking about the nature of what it means to be human. Simply that. What it means to be human. What it means to be a living being. What it means to be a soul. What is life for a person? What does it mean to exist? And um, a guy named Yalom came together, uh, did some thinking, and came up with four fundamental fears that people have that drive people's uh, motives. These are the fear of death. So I'm going to cease to exist. My life is going to be insignificant. The world will get on without me. And, and, and quite likely, when you thought about what you feared, generally it probably fits under one of these four categories. Um, so fear of death, my, life, my life's insignificant, the world's going to get on without me when I'm dead and gone. Fear of isolation, fear of being alone, no one knows me, I'll have no genuine connection with other people. No one understands me, no one gets me. Fear of meaninglessness, life has no ultimate purpose, I must achieve things to give me meaning. Fear of freedom. I'm scared of taking responsibility for my choices and actions. Can't someone lead me? Can't someone tell me what to do? Why do I have to be responsible for my life? All of these, you see, could lead to extreme lifestyles. You could understand how, all, how these fears could drive people to extreme measures that may look on the outside successful. A person who struggles with meaninglessness 
may, have, may, may strive to have achievements, accomplishments, get things done, but really inside of them they've been driven by a fear. Externally it looks like they're just a high achiever, but they're dying on the inside. Someone may look like an extrovert. They're, just, they're so social. They, they connect so well with people. They're just always around. They're the life of the party, but they have a fear of isolation. And they never really feel like they're known. And what's driving them is this fear, FOMO, fear of missing out. If I miss out, who am I? You can understand that as you go down this road, and, and we hear this, you know, when people, people are depressed or it gets worse and, and people start to have dark thoughts or people actually take their lives. We, we hear things or we think things or we fear things like, feel things like, but they had it all. Their life was so good. What, how did they get there? Right? We hear this about uh, sports athletes when they retire. What gave them meaning is over. And then we find out that they're depressed. And we're like, how could they be? They're so-and-so. They have everything. Everyone loves them. They've got money. They, they, they're popular. Well, they can't feed their fear of being meaningless. What I, I want to try to do is think about five ways that, that we, uh, five worldviews that we have and how they deal with our fears and how the only one that works is the good news the angels gave the shepherds. The first one is atheism. Atheism says there's no God. You know this, right? So when we think about atheism and death, for example, it says... It doesn't it really, fundamentally, philosophically, it says it doesn't matter how you treat other people because there is no God, there is no consequence. When you're dead, it's all over anyway. So just live however you want. It's kind of relative, right? Just, just do whatever you want. There's no God. Who are you accountable to ultimately anyway? Everyone's going to die. It's not going to matter what's done. So there's the fear of, of uh, death. What about atheism and isolation? Because there's no God, you're not defined by your relationships that you have in this life, or you have to be defined, sorry, by the relationships you have in this life. So if you have no meaningful relationships in this life, your life is insignificant. Because what else is there? You can understand how that worldview could naturally lead to feelings of depression. And be living there too long, going down the road, it, it just... You can imagine how dark and scary that could be. What about deism? It says that God made the world and then left it alone. He's kind of aloof. He's kind of not interested. He doesn't want to be bothered with it. He's on his own. He's just like absentee father. I made the child, but I don't want anything to do with them. I've got more important things to do. Raise yourself. Get on with your life. Do whatever you want. What about deism and meaningfulness? God has uh, no use for your life. He's got no purpose for your life. He's not interested in your life. Your life is somewhat incidental. You're non-essential. So if you want to have purpose, you better go find it yourself. You better go find some meaning. You better go fight for something. You better give your life to something. How do you think things like terrorism and that go about or come about? People who are willing to die for something. What do you think they're looking for? What fear do you think they're fighting? Seems extreme, right? But what's happening in their core is no different to what happens in many of us. What about deism and freedom? God isn't interested in your life. Your future is on you. You're responsible for getting yourself forward. If you fail, you're to blame. If things go bad, it's your fault. 
someone who feels like this, can, imagine how heightened their fear becomes. Knowing that whatever happens in their life is their fault anyway. You can imagine someone like that trying to blame everyone else just to distract themselves from their own sense of responsibility for everything. Have you ever met anyone that just never seems to take responsibility for their decisions? We can so easily judge them, but what if inside of them they're fighting this fear of freedom, this fear of taking responsibility for this life, their lives, knowing that they actually can't? Wouldn't that cause some compassion? Pantheism is the third one. This is, God is a divine force, everything is God, everything is connected, we're all God together. What about pantheism and death? Well, there's no life after death, there's just nothingness. Your energy, your molecules (laughs) will go on to genetically uh, create other beings. So you can imagine that if if your life is crummy, it sucks, then it's better that you enter the nothingness and let your energy go be used for something else, more productive. Not that anyone would get up and say that, but philosophically that's what's being said. What what do you do with your life when you have suffering and pain? How how do you go through that when you realize that when death comes, you just stop existing? So in life there's pain and suffering that are inescapable, and death is nothingness. You can imagine how death and nothingness sometimes seems more attractive than pain and suffering. And you can imagine how someone who believes this might think that entering their death, maybe prematurely, is better than living in their pain and suffering. It's no way to live. What about theism? God exists, but you have to save yourself. So, what about theism and freedom? It says, if you disobey God, you're going to pay for it. If you make the wrong decision, you're going to pay for it. If you make the wrong choice, you're going to pay for it. If you make the wrong action, you're going to pay for it. Basically, do whatever you want and know that you're probably going to pay for it. Because it's never going to be enough. God won't be satisfied. You're supposed to pray five times a day. We think about that in terms of Islam. But in terms of uh, traditional Christianity, there were some traditions where prayer was seven times a day and some with more. Who of you pray daily, consistently? Who of you pray seven times daily, consistently? Who of you pray five times daily, three times daily? Who of you pray? I'm not trying to come. Yeah, thank you. Some raised their hand like, finally an answer I can raise my hand to. The point, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be an advocate for a deistic God. God is not like uh, the God of deism. My car broke down. I must have done something wrong. God's punishing me. I got, the, I, got a, I got the flu. God must be punishing me. And you, this living with the sense of fear, of freedom, I don't know what decisions to make with my life because if I make the wrong one, God's going to punish me. I better make the right one. So even when you're making the right decisions, you're not enjoying them because you're only making them to stay out of trouble with God. You better be kind to someone. God is love. So you lovingly treat, you treat your wife in love, but in, inside of you, you actually despise and you're bitter and you're not sharing the things that you need to share to grow your marriage because you're just trying to stay out of trouble with the big man. 
You get offered some money under the counter, but you refuse to take it. Not because you're dealing with your heart, which is greedy. Not because money is not your idol. Not because you're not looking for security. But you're more scared that you'll get in trouble with God if you take that money than actually dealing with your heart and asking the question, why is it that I think money will give me security? And you walk away going, I'm so good, God will look after me. And then you lose the deal, you lose your money. What's going on? Why is God punishing me? Anyway, let's move on. I guess I just wanted to stay on a, on a theistic God because many of us drift there. Many Christians drift there. That God is this angry, hard-to-please Father who's looking for a reason to punish us. He basically is like our shadow that follows us around and just can't wait to point things out that we're doing wrong. And God is not like that. Christianity, God exists and enters the world to save us. I know I've gone long this morning. Thanks for the time. I'm going to draw to a close over here. Or towards a close, I said. I'm not closing right now. <laughs> God exists and enters the world to save us. Sorry, let me just pause to say we put our, uh, we put our thoughts of God on others as well. Which means that if you think of God in that way, you're going to think of your boss in that way. Always got to please my boss or else. Got to please my friends or else. Christianity says God exists and enters the world to save us. We don't save ourselves like the deistic God. God comes and saves us. We've done nothing. So what does a Christian think about death? The fear of death. Not death. It's the, death is a consequence of sin. It, it's unnatural. It's not a space that we look forward to entering. We don't run toward death desiring it. We're not sadistic in that sense. But death has lost its sting because Christ has been born into the earth and He's gone to the death that we deserve. And on the cross, He faced the death that we deserve, punished for the sin that we have brought into this world. And now He has been raised to life and He he invites us, He calls us through the gospel, the good news to the shepherds, to come into eternal life with Him. And now death is no longer the final gong of condemnation against our sin, but an invitation into eternal life. Walk through death into my presence. Leave this life of pain and suffering eventually, of imperfection. Know me in that life. Know my comfort, know my spirit, know my hope, know my joy. Look beyond the horizon, and when the right time comes, enter through the gateway of death into eternal life. And let me heal you. Let me redeem you fully. Let me bring you into life as it was meant to be. So death loses its sting, and the fear of death loses its sting. Not because of a fantasy or a dream, but because the reality of Jesus, a baby born, went to the reality of the cross, a death where He died in our place so that we don't face that same death, that same condemnation, so that we can have life eternal in Him. Hope. Hope. So if you're someone who deals with the fear of death, you have an eternal hope that you can speak back over and over and over and over and over. What, about, what does Christianity say to isolation? I don't have fear of being alone. I don't have to have fear of no connection, of not being understood. The God of all creation, the God who made me, the God who knew me before I was in my mother's womb, the God who knows the number of hairs on my head, the God who knew my name before I had a name, the God who entered my world, entered my life, invited me into relationship with me, and sent His Spirit to live inside of me and walks with me and says He never leaves me, knows me, likes me, wants to be with me, and invites me to walk with Him. 
And yes, I might not have great relationships with everyone. Yes, my relationships may struggle. Yes, I wish someone else understood me and knew me. Yes, I would like to go deeper. Yes, sometimes I feel being isolated. But I know I never am because He never leaves me or forsakes me. I have a truth that I can speak into my fear. And the love of God, He loves me. He knows me. Speaks to the fear of isolation. What about Christian and meaninglessness? My life's incidental. My life is not incidental. He knows the plans He has for me. I'm not an accident. His will for my life may actually not look like accomplishments or accolades. He may actually have a very lowly, off-the-radar path for me. He may allow me to go through pain and suffering. He may, allow me to, he may not allow me to ever be a big someone or something. I may never get a lot of praise or admiration. But every moment of every day of, of my life is accounted for by Him. He has meaning for me. He has plans for me. Paul says in Ephesians that, that God has plans prepared for us that we should walk in them. Sometimes we struggle with them because they're not the plans we want. But not, God's plans for us not being the plans we want doesn't mean that God doesn't have plans for us all the time. And that means that every single day I don't have to feel meaningless and I don't have to charge of a, uh, for accomplishments. I don't have to burn myself out to get recognition because every day before I do anything, before I even roll out of bed, I can thank God and say, thank you that today you have woken me up. My life has meaning. You haven't taken me away yet. It means you want me here. And just like Luke said in Acts, you have ordained the times and the seasons where we are to dwell. I know I'm in your will, even though I don't know what that is. Fully. What does Christianity say to freedom? Christianity, I think, comes in with a comforting word and says, Good news. You're not sovereign, you're not licensed to be independent. You know how you've always uh, been taught in a Western sense to do what's right, right for you and to um, look after number one and you're not supposed to. But you've been brought into a relationship with a God who is sovereign, who is omniscient. He knows everything. And you can bring every decision like Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence tells stories about how he would go and have to buy bread for the monastery and he wouldn't even know how to do that. How do you work with money and things? How do you make transaction? And he would just pray and say, God, please, by your spirit, help me to make good deals today. And he just see every single day God coming through, helping him in his decisions, in his walking. He didn't become paralyzed, didn't become passive, kept going, kept walking, kept making decisions, knowing, God, you are with me. You will help me. You'll give me peace. You'll give me wisdom. You'll give me friends and brothers and sisters. You'll give me your word. You'll speak to me. You'll guide me. You'll lead me. I don't have to fear the decisions of my life. I can come to you and ask you to lead me. You are my shepherd. The fear of freedom, you remind yourself, I have a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He sometimes makes me lie down. He sometimes feeds me. Sometimes He sets me before my enemies. But He's always with me. And His rod and His staff, they will comfort me. Every major worldview tries to deal with fear by minimizing it. Try, tries to come up with something that can 
deal with it, but never really does. But the good news of Jesus is simply, fear not. Fear not. Good news of Jesus just diminishes the fear entirely, blows it up, gets rid of it. Fear not. So how would we summarize, and now I am landing how would we summarize what Luke's saying to Theophilus? Remember he says, I want you to be sure about the things that you've heard. Why is he telling Theophilus this story? I think he's saying to Theophilus, Theophilus, Nasia, Steph, Charlotte, Steve, Charlotte, <laughs> Julian, Charlotte, You can believe God because God has left heaven and come to earth to make himself seen and known. And from the cradle to the cross, he humbled himself to reach you. You can believe him. Can life be difficult right now? Yeah, 50-50 in this room. 50% of you are having a good time in life. 50% of you are struggling right now. Both of us, whoever we are, you can believe God. What if it seems complex? You can believe God. What if it's causing you to lose sleep at night? You can believe God. Suffering may come, but you can believe God, even if it's to know that God will not let the suffering last. It always feels like suffering lasts too long, but it won't ultimately last at all. Life could suck for a bit, but you can believe God will come and rescue you. You may encounter injustice. Christians, we really have to get our heads around that. Work life, especially work life, you will encounter injustice. But God can be, you can believe that God will give you back what was lost. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We don't have to fight for ourselves, for our name, for our reputation. We can believe God and trust Him. Ultimately, He is our boss. Our lives are in His hands. You may experience loneliness, but you can believe that God will bring you into an intimate relationship with Himself and His people. You may experience depression, but you can believe that God will heal you and give you an oil of joy and dress you in a garment of praise. If not right now, then 100% for eternity. I think he's saying, Theophilus, what Jesus shows us is that we can totally, fully believe God. We all have fears. Our fears are real. There's things we fear, but because of Jesus and the love of God shown in Jesus, fear not. Let me pray.